I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... And so you have to ask people, well, what is success going to look like for you here? And I think for Americans as voters, we have to decide, what do we want? Do we want to continue to be the world leader and the first country to experiment with successfully democracy? Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Today, we're joined by our old friend, Richard Levick. He runs a crisis management firm here in the D.C. area called Levick, strangely enough. So we talked about how do you manage a company or a brand or a person who's in crisis. And guess what? We talk about some of the ones we're experiencing right now as citizens. Will Smith, Ukraine, Zelensky. He has a comment that I think all of you will find great interest in, which is today, because of constant internet access to everything, we're often known for our worst moment as opposed to our best moment. But what does crisis mean to any brand? How do you manage it? That's Richard Levick. He's our conversation today. Here's our talk. Richard, thanks for joining us. Mark, it's great to see you again. Thanks so much. So crisis management, um, a term that used to be sort of holy moly, that's kind of niche but I think the world is in crisis, so your timing is exquisite, sir. Uh, are the clients lining up outside your front door, or are you, are, I mean, like, am, am I right that there's so much crisis going on more than usual? Well, you know, I'm going to answer like my rabbi, yes and no. Okay. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it's a real challenge. One, thanks so much for the tagline, fixing the impossible. Of course, what it means is some people take it literally, which means the phone rings at 11.59, yes. you know, and they say, can you fix it by tomorrow? Help. Uh, yeah. and, and that always raises a challenge. But, you know, a few things have happened. One, the Internet, which Al Gore invented, has changed everything. So it allows people to communicate, get involved, obviously, at all sorts of levels. Two, there is a much more crowded marketplace than there used to be. We used to be one of the very few firms in the world that was known globally for crisis communications. Now everybody, including advertising firms, say they do it as well. The definition by definition, has changed. Mm -hmm. So now some people refer to crisis as the slip and fall at the grocery store, which sort of have as a one-day story. We always refer to it as as the nation-state things when – we're followed by spies or life is a, liberty or life is at issue here. And they're really extraordinarily challenging issues, obviously legislative, regulatory. And then three, when Donald Trump was president of the United States, he was the beginning and end of every news cycle. And mm-hmm. what that did was it reduced down the amount of coverage on business stories. And plus, of course, all the Internet pressure means there are far fewer reporters far shorter news cycles of business stories, a lot fewer businesses that face the existential elongated crises. What percentage of your clients are asking you to make an issue go away versus change the conversation around an issue? Or could it be both? It, it is both, uh, and it all depends on the strategy. But we, we do get hired for, for both. That is the public affairs side, which is make this – top of mind and important. We want to change something that's critical. And others are, we would really rather not be talking about this. Mm -hmm. This is impacting our brand. This is impacting our share price. Please make it go away. Yeah. So um, off the coast of this spot in the Chesapeake Bay where I go a lot is the giant ship Evergreen. If you know, that's the sister ship of the one that was blocked, the Suez Canal. 
And I'm wondering, every time I drive by it, because I see it every time I drive to the spot, uh, Evergreen is, you know, 70 feet tall letters on the side of the ship. Didn't there used to be a way to sort of block out these logos of disasters so that people wouldn't visually be reminded about it every single time the news story came up? Well, sure. They were called painters, uh, you know, <laughs> and they would change the name of the ship. Um, it, yeah. Not always a bad idea, but, you know, how, how ironic. There are certain things that people never said. George Bush never said mission accomplished. Al Gore uh, never said he invented the uh, Internet. Sarah Palin, uh, who's now running for Congress, uh, never said, I can see Russia from my house. But what happens is once an identity is made, it somehow cuts through that clutter of five, 8,000 different messages we get daily, and it's permanently branded on the inside of our brains, and we see it all the time. So it's a little late to be changing the name of the ship. Well, I concur it's a little bit late, but I just I wondered if I, – perhaps I'm wrong, but as I recall back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, all the major airlines had painting teams on 24-7 alert to go paint the logo on the tail if there was a wreck. Am I wrong, or did you know if that was true? I, you know, I don't remember that, but, you know, as the old saying goes, people who say they remember the 60s weren't there. So, Correct. You know, Robin I, Williams, yeah. I, right. So, yeah. well, you know, I, I'm using my best stuff, but it's if I have stuff. to beg, borrow, and steal, yeah, I apologize. I, I the You know, I don't know if that's always a strategy, but I would say this in terms of airlines. And I remember we were handling AIG during the financial crisis, and this was before the famous moment when the three auto executives – going flying to Washington for TARP funds, the Toxic Asset Recovery Program, were flying private jets. Obviously a real problem. And (laughs) one of our executives said to the AIG executives, whatever you do, and again, this was before the famous Detroit mistake, whatever you do, do not take the AIG plan. And I think what happens is, look, we're all overwhelmed by information. But a crisis, everything is upside down. What's acceptable 364 days a year is not acceptable then. David Gergen, counsel to four presidents, three Republicans, one Democrat, famously said, photo, headline, story. What's the photo? What do you see? That's what people remember. Yeah. Well, suppose that Karl Rove used to say that the best uh, political TV ad you can watch with the sound off and still get the message which I think underscores exactly what you just said. Well, Johnson, you know, Lyndon Johnson's famous Barry Goldwater ad to light a fire, if you will, under the fears that Barry Goldwater was uh, was going to be uh, someone you could not trust at the nuclear button. The famous what's called the daisy ad, where you hear in the background a little girl counting down as she picks off the flowers, uh, the, the petals day, of the, the daisy. Pe- yeah. Thank you, petals of the daisy. You can see why I had, after you know, freshman science, I had to drop out <laughs> of that major. But, um, and then, of course, the, the visual is replaced by the mushroom cloud. People think that that ad ran a great deal. It only ran once. Right. It was so powerful. And I think Karl Rove, as he is about so many things, and I, you know, I see the world differently than Karl Rove does, but I think as so many Americans, we have to remember our epistemology. That is, how do we learn? How do, how do, how do we focus? And that all tactics are neutral, and Karl Rove is someone we should be reading all the time. Well, I think it's it, it, there's probably never a good or bad time for me to bring up to you, Richard Levick, founder of Levick, the crisis management firm whose logo, for those listening, is Fixing the Impossible, TM, uh, just so you know. But there's never a good time or bad time to start talking about what happened at the Oscars. So, uh, you know, as, as time continues to pass from that amazing—I t- saw it live. I'm not sure if you did. Uh, as time continues to pass since that, 
everybody's weighing in from the various prisms of the facet of what it means to be a Hollywood star and that that night. Uh, unfair question. But if you were the, I won't say PR flack because that's dismissive, but if you were advising Chris Rock, would you continue to advise him to say zero or very, very little? I think Chris Rock handled his surprise with so much grace and he was, at the end of the day, one of the victims. Now, you can look at it differently to say he was a perpetrator in terms of his joke, but that is, after all, what comedians are supposed to do. He handled it with such grace. He doesn't need to say much. And the fact that he can keep his powder dry and decide when and if he wants to forgive Will Smith, this works very well for him. All other human issues aside, I think from a positioning point of view, Will Smith is— it's almost as if we finally saw this other side of him that he admits to in his autobiography. You know, he refers to himself as Mr. Fluffy and the side that we see all the time. And now suddenly we're seeing the side that his family has indicated through hints and uh, that, that, in fact, it's there, that the, the, more like his father, that more abusive side. The thing that concerns me most, and this gets back to the Carl Rove comment, when Will Smith, after the slap and turns around, he has a smirk on his face. Mm -hmm. He's proud of himself. And that lives in infamy. Well, also, uh, and again, I'll make the unfair question to you. If you were advising Will Smith, would you have told him to not go to the after party and be dancing like a maniac in the, in the, in the uh, strobe light at 2 a.m.? Uh, yes, but at my age, I don't go to those parties anyway. <laughs> but, I, you know, a few things. I don't think that he thought he did anything wrong. Yeah. I, you know, I can understand from a scorned husband the non-apology apology once he wins for the, the award for CODA. But it's afterwards, after he's had time. And remember, between the slap, the award, and the party— he has taken aside and talked to by people whom he trusts. Yeah. And it still doesn't penetrate that this is a significant moment. A day, day and a half later, he finally issues an apology to Chris Rock. But I don't think he fully appreciates that this person we have grown up with since childhood, who we have seen and loved for who we think he is, has shown himself not entirely fairly, but not entirely unrelated to Bill Cosby, whom we loved and grew up with, yep. you know, from the the, the old days of uh, I Spy, I Spy, the TV show, where we saw him go, in, in Will Smith's case, from a child to a man we all aspire to be and whom we feel so close to. I mean, he's, you know— I'm not someone who's very good with uh, contemporary culture. I mean, ask me about anything, you know, Gregorian chants, I'm great. But, you know, you, you ask it. me, you like, who won the Oscars? Yeah. But Will Smith, of course, permeates my consciousness, and it's so heartbreaking and disappointing. Yeah. When I was at the Small Business Administration under the Obama administration the last couple of years, uh, he came to see us, and I spent an hour with a guy one-on-one -on -one talking about the investments and this venture capital stuff we were doing in my arena with the public-private partnerships and he was very engaged, and he was doing stuff in uh, Baltimore. I'm from Baltimore. His wife, Jada Pinkett-Smith, is from Baltimore. We spent an hour together, and I uh, – look, Hollywood stars are Hollywood stars. But I was, to your point, amazed at how open and transparent and friendly and completely um, uh, not full of himself in this business conversation about stuff they were doing. He stood out of what I thought he was going to be, and to see that was an amazing shock for me. Now – that being said, you said a phrase earlier, Richard Levick, uh, founder of Levick, the 
fixing the impossible crisis management firm about I did nothing wrong. So what percentage of your clients would you say when they sign you up say, I didn't do anything wrong? So fixing the impossible when they don't know that they did something wrong. You know, I think it's true that sometimes people don't do anything wrong, but oftentimes it's a situation where the punishment does not fit the crime. Yeah. You know, when I was in law school, our First Amendment professor asked the question about, you know, how many of you uh, believe in the First Amendment? And, of course, all the hands went up. But then it wasn't that long after the, the Nazis marching in Skokie. People always had a but, an yeah. exception. And I think that's true for all of us. We all believe in due process until we're the victims and suddenly it's hang them, hang them high. Yeah. And so there is – uh, you know, for clients as well, oftentimes they are caught in an unfairness. I'm, I'm, I find it quite frankly remarkable, less so about the clients and the audience, that we tend not to believe in the First Amendment if it's speech we don't agree with. We tend not to believe in due process. We tend not to believe in statute of limitations. And I think what's most important is that people get a fair hearing, both in the court of law and the court of public opinion. That's the voice of Richard Levick. He is our guest today on What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Richard is the founder and head of Levick, the crisis management firm right here in the Washington, D.C. area. We'll be back with more of our conversation after this. taking a break to discuss some ways you might become a little more involved with what's working in Washington. There's several ways. Take a moment to rate us positively or negatively. We'd love to hear from you. Secondly, our audience is an obvious one. Folks that care about Washington, D.C. and the environs. Folks that care about the Federal News Network. Folks that care about our nation. If you'd like to have your message heard by that kind of audience, be sure to contact us for sponsorship opportunities. You can email me directly at walsh at AOL.com. That's W-A-L-S-H at AOL.com. Yes, it's a dated email address, but it still works. We look forward to hearing from you. today by Richard Levick, the uh, name and name-er of his crisis management firm here in the D.C. area called Levick. So, so much crisis, so many clients, so much to do in so little time. Here's a big one, Ukraine. If you were Zelensky's advisor, would you give him, or maybe maybe as a third party observing how he's managing his role, what grade would you give him? Uh, A plus. I concur. I think he's killing it. Have you ever seen somebody, I mean, it's a difficult situation to compare, manage global opinion about what he is he and his nation are going through better than him? You know, a few thoughts here. One, Thomas Friedman just wrote a piece in the New York Times, uh, the not-too-distant past, in which he said, this is our first real world war. And what he meant by that was it's the first time we're seeing satellite images uh, phone video of people and atrocities in the war as it happens. We are there. As Walter Cronkite used to say 60 years ago, 70 years ago on radio, you are there. Yep. We are there. And it is emotional. It's also incredibly significant. We have gotten lazy as Americans. We've had largely 70 years, give or take a few years, that are, were the aberration, but 70 years of post-World War II prosperity. And 
that obviously has started coming to an end in the last few years, and we've started complaining amongst ourselves. The polarity in the United States is so obvious, painful, and significant that we've had to live with for the last five, six, seven years. This is reminding us of the difference between democracy, a liberal democracy, freedom, and atrocity. And when you have a government that is run as a kleptocracy and a monarchy, and I think for all of the tragedy, it is an important and critical reminder that there's a reason for rules. There's a reason for why we abide by the soft rules. You know, and I'm not trying to be political here, but we tried America first 75 years ago under Lindbergh. It didn't work then. It didn't work now. And thank God for the miracle of this country and NATO to be able to use sanctions in a way that has at least has uh, President Putin thinking differently. Uh, And of course, the Ukrainians are heroic at an extraordinary level. And it begins with President Zelensky. So I'm really glad that we had that conversation because I completely agree, and I was hoping that you and I would would agree. So it must mean we're both right because we, we agree with each other. But let's talk about politicians in general or country leaders in general because to your point on a world war with the Internet or, I guess, connectivity allowing us to know everything in real time, both good and bad, I'm also amazed at the rise of, po- of elected politicians at the congressional, senatorial, gubernatorial, mayoral level who get elected for being – incendiary and famous and often don't do much for their constituents, but they're reelected because they're very, very well known. And I'm not trying to be political here, but two good examples, I think, are Boebert, Congressman Boebert, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now we see that uh, Governor Palin has reentered the race of congressperson. These are people who aren't known for legislative victories, but they're certainly known for being well known. And I wonder, do you see corporations or other clients of yours having similar challenges where they often get known for the things they don't don't want to be good at? Or I guess I'm asking it badly, but where does this go? Well, first of all, let me answer your political question in a non-political way. Please do. Um, But I think that the first question that we so often ask is, what does success look like? What do you want to accomplish? And often with that, particularly for our clients, because they're in crisis, is what is the sacrifice that you're willing to make going to look like? You know, the most famous example in the last half century, of course, Johnson & Johnson, and the Tylenol crisis, and there you had them pulling all of their over-the-counter pain medications before the FDA, the regulator, had uh, made any demands on them. They were willing to make that sacrifice and sacrifice the profits of one quarter for what would turn out to be 30 years of brand loyalty in love. And so you have to ask people, what is success going to look like for you here? And I think for Americans as voters, we have to decide, what do we want? Do we want to continue to be the world leader and the first country, with the exception of the pirates, but the first country to experiment with successfully democracy? You know, we're in your studio here, and I am impressed by it every time I walk in because on different conference rooms and walls, you have famous quotes from the Constitution, from the Declaration of Independence. They are religious. They are theologic. It means so much. When we take this democracy for granted, it is forgetting that no one else was ever able to do this. The French followed us. The very radical notion that the government would be run by the people is something that we should never, 
ever, as Winston Churchill would say, never, ever, ever give up, never forget. And I hope we don't. And sometimes I fear that we do. But I think, if anything, the silver lining on the tragedy in Ukraine is that we seem to be remembering that this is a country and a concept worth living and dying for. L'état c'est moi, as was famously said in France. But now we see some of our elected officials implying that. But I concur democracy is worth saving. So you brought up my next question without even realizing it. Tylenol it seems to be still the, the top of the pyramid of examples for crisis management and behavior that worked out well for all constituents. Are there other shining examples that have happened since Tylenol? Because that's what, 40 years ago, 30 years ago? It's uh, what, just 40. In, in your book of in your book of, uh, of of golden moments, what are some others? Well, I think, you know, there there are hundreds, but I, I think Marriott at the beginning of COVID is a great example. Here you had the CEO, the late CEO, um, going on YouTube and doing a video right after chemo and talking with humidity, humility uh, and humanity about the people they were letting go, yeah. about what they had to do, the ability to run to the light, and even though it was bad news, be able to communicate. I, I think there was uh, an extraordinary level of of heroism there that, to me, is a shining example. So um, I know, or I knew Arnie Sorensen and his family, and I, I'm glad you brought it up because he was a fantastic leader. I, I think the I wish the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies could could mimic his behavior, both bad and good. But there seem to be some others uh, whose misbehavior or behavior during COVID has been less appetizing. People firing people on Zoom and stuff like that. Um, again, I'm fascinated by your the title of your firm and what you and your colleagues do every day. When somebody calls, what percentage of the time do they describe their problem to you, and then you say, actually, their problem is something else? I think like that, all the time? I would bet it was all the time. No, I think that there's a certain level of honesty, but it's like a divorce lawyer. You know, that is something, unfortunately, I know all too well, but okay. that you need to keep asking lots of questions. There's always more there. There is, you know, unfortunately, so many of the examples that are extraordinary stories I can't talk about for purposes of privilege and privacy. Yeah. But you have to keep asking questions. And one of the most important things we do, you know, and I know and I'm grateful how you describe our firm, but of course, we're international in nature. And so we're always in different cultures all over the world. And one of the things that really bothers me, if you will, about uh, I think it's I, I would probably describe it as sort of the left's perspective of diversity, equity and inclusion is it's not very diverse. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the more you travel around the world, the more you see differences and you see cultural differences between Korea and Japan or between Abu Dhabi and Dubai, even though those two are only, not, you know, a 90-minute commute apart on a bad day with traffic, that there are lots of cultural differences. And the most important thing that we can do, and this is true in a crisis communications conversation, is you listen and you ask good questions. And the more you do that, the more you get their perspective. Yeah. At least the client, I hope, has to have some conception of what happened. I'm reminded of the great moment in the movie Anchorman when Ron Burgundy says, go F yourself, San Diego, when he's reading the teleprompter and finishes the broadcast without any conception of what, of what he said. You probably have the occasional client like that. I think, you know, if you're asking the question, how many times do clients step in it? Yes, it happens. But I would also say this, getting back to Tom Friedman's comment about the, this being a world war, 
we used to get three to 5,000 messages a day. Now it's double, triple, quadruple, who knows what the actual number is. And we're all on video 24-7. Right. We are not remembered for our best moments. We're remembered for our worst. Yep. If you were going to ask me what we the people, to be quoting yet again yep. uh, from the declaration, and not so much the clients can be doing is we can be a little more patient in our judgment. Yeah. Well, one would argue Will Smith on his on his uh, obituary will have he just changed the first line of his obituary, which is pretty pretty sad in my personal opinion because I I think highly of the person or maybe I used to. So we're close to the end here, and what we ask our guests, Richard Levick, at the end of our conversation is to take a moment and pretend a magic wand is put into their palm and they are the ruler of all in the universe for a period of time. What would you, as ruler of the universe, start that you wish was happening more? And if you wish, what would you end that you wish didn't happen? So I'll, I'll answer those in reverse order. And that is, I wish for an end of the hostilities in the Ukraine that, uh, and that Vladimir Putin learns his lesson, uh, I don't think he has or will, um, and that he does not use this as an uh, opportunity to empire build yet again, uh, merely looking at the Ukraine as one step. And two, in terms of what we can do going forward is all of us never forget this moment of unified appreciation and unanimity in defense of democracy. So those are fantastic lofty goals. Uh, and I hope you end up being correct. Although, again, small magic, or not magic wand, a crystal ball, uh, not not that you observe the Ukraine crisis with any higher level of military expertise that you and I don't necessarily claim to have. What's your sense of the end game here? From a crisis management perspective, I think Putin probably has crisis management needs a lot higher than Zelensky. Well, yeah, interesting question. I mean, Zelensky's got at least 10 years of rebuilding. He'll have the world to support him, but it's going to be extraordinary in terms of the amount of work to be done. And unfortunately and tragically, many of us will forget the horrors long before yes. the rebuilding is done. And for Putin, that remains to be seen because we are, just as we were at the beginning of World War II, seeing all the stars line up and we wonder where is this all going you know, revisit this in a week or two weeks or three weeks, and that will continue to change. If it expands in the ways that we're all afraid of, it's going to be with us for a very long time. So if one of our listeners is experiencing crisis in their professional career, where would they go to find you and your colleagues? Levick.com, L-E-V-I-C-K.com. Fixing the impossible. I like that tagline, sir. It's Richard Levick as our guest. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you. Every week on What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. If you are a DC insider and want to know what leaders in other industries are talking about, we give you that insight. So thanks for listening. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. We want perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. You can reach out through our website or through Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.